You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. This is a special bonus episode because we are on season break between seasons one and two of Reversing Climate Change, but I didn't want to leave you in the lurch without any content for I'm not even sure how long this break is going to be, maybe a month, maybe two, maybe more, maybe less, trying to strategize the next season. So I wanted to get a couple episodes out to release during that interim to make sure that uh, you weren't left all by your lonesome, I guess you could say. And we've been talking about doing a theology series. We've been doing research and trying to meet the right people to do a show about this. And I read an interesting article recently by Dr. Evan Keen, who works at the library at North Park University in Chicago and with ATLA on their religion database. His article is called, Is the Climate Crisis a Secular Eschatology? I thought it was really interesting. I've heard this criticism before about climate change or just activism in general. So I wanted to have Evan on to, to discuss it with me. So thank you for being here, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me. It caught my eye. Provocative title. Um, so good work there. I'm not even sure that this title would make sense to our listeners. I'm not sure how many of them even know what an eschatology is. That is a $5 word if I've ever seen one. Uh, so what does it mean? So I think when if people do know or have heard the word eschatology, uh, I think they usually think of things like the rapture or the four horsemen of the apocalypse, millennial prophecies, things like that. The, the Left Behind book series that came out in the 90s. Yeah, Kirk Cameron, like man. I so, remember those days. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, and, or like the late great planet Earth, even before that. So all of that kind of stuff, I think, is what people usually think of when they hear the word eschatology, if they think of anything at all. And all of that is a sort of eschatology. I would probably call it an apocalyptic eschatology of sorts. But I think really basically, eschatology is just an account of how things end. Uh, eschatology, it's, it's sort of a, a subfield of theology. So, um, an understanding of, of God in the world where we're particularly looking at how history holds together as a completed story. So this means that eschatology usually signals a sort of, uh, discontinuity with our normal histories. And that's where you get these things uh, like, you know, horrible wars and, and four horsemen and things like that. The biblical language for this is like a new creation. So there's kind of a break with the current one and we have a new one that comes forward. Uh, but at its most basic and, and general and maybe philosophical, when, when we talk about eschatology, we're just talking about how the world ends and in particular how our world ends in a way that brings closure um, and coherence to the life that we're leading now. Okay, that makes sense. And I think is good groundwork for anyone listening. And I think the connection to climate change should be relatively clear. I mean, it seems like there has been a dramatic increase in the weeping and gnashing of teeth over climate change, I think you could say. Uh, people are, are scared that this might be a sort of end time scenario and what that looks like. And I've heard this from, particularly from conservatives for a very long time, that there's going to be uh, some sort of crisis. So if you're a Marxist, maybe you think about this as class struggle within uh, historical materialism. You have this like dialectical process where you go from feudalism to capitalism and there's these internal tensions. And eventually that leads to a final crisis. And then there's a, a brief period where there's a communist state. 
And then after that, we live in a classless society that's basically anarchistic and we all live in harmony. And this is sort of like, that's a form of eschatology and it's secular. You could say that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's fair. And in the article you mentioned, I, I kind of push back on that a little bit, but I think ultimately that's fair to call something like that a secular eschatology of sorts. Uh, it isn't necessarily, uh, people use it or they weaponize this, this term as a way of casting doubt on it, where it, it's a way of calling someone a utopian, I think. So could climate change be a secular eschatology? But it doesn't necessarily have to be bad or criticism of that way of conceptualizing it, does it? Right. So I would say, and I think you're right, I, I definitely, um, this is something that gets dispatched and weaponized against certain ways of understanding either the near or far future. If we're just going to say climate change is a secular eschatology, I think that makes a lot of sense. We're, we're talking in some very serious ways about the ends of human history, whether we're, you know, we're talking about some sort of ultimate extinction or even just you know, the disappearance of certain islands and the cultures that exist there, or the disappearance of our certain way of life that we've lived in the post-industrial West. Those are, those are genuine ends that people are wrestling with. And in that sense, I think you can call it a secular eschatology. Uh, but like you said, I think where I think the problem is, is, is when it, it gets weaponized as like a gotcha criticism of, oh, it's just a secular eschatology. You know, you're, you're just sort of creating this ersatz religion that, that, that you're borrowing from older traditions. I'm not sure. Sometimes that, that's probably true, but I think in lots of cases that's overblown. I think that's fair. Indeed, yeah. I think of, I'm pretty sure I first heard this many times reading Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy, which is super, it's sort of like um, inherent vice but it's about if all conspiracy theories were simultaneously true. So you have this like mm -hmm. multiple weird overlapping universes. And, and one of the mottos that they use is uh, don't immunitize the eschaton. You're sort of like bringing the end of the world to the present in a way that is creating crisis where potentially none needs to exist. And then that Marxist example works. But I'll also I was intrigued reading Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, where I believe it's it's early in the book. It might be the introduction. She talks about how climate change is a chance for a shock doctrine of the people for climate change is a, is a chance to reshape society in a very radical way, according to um, what progressives might like to see. So mm -hmm. the, the charge may be unfair sometimes, but sometimes it, I think it is pretty accurate. And I think Naomi Klein was pretty honest in saying that this kind of is uh, uh, an eschatology, at least for the progressive left who cares about climate change. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually, uh, honestly, I haven't read uh, the Naomi Klein's uh, book about that, but I, knowing just generally sort of uh, the project she's doing with it, it brings to mind, and she might have even used this quote, uh, the idea that it is more difficult to imagine the end of capitalism than it is to imagine the end of the world. And so this, I think, sometimes gets sort of associated with the idea of capitalist realism. Uh, but it, it specifically ties the socioeconomic structures that are put into question by something like climate change to uh, the eschatological question. So yeah, I, th I think it's definitely relevant to eschatological ways of thinking about the world. Yeah, very, very intriguing. I like, I like thinking about it in, in this way. And also that the idea of like not eminentizing the eschaton, this is, I think, a really, it, it's the key to a lot of the uh, ambiguity about talking about things in an eschatological register, because it kind of creates this weird 
dialectic where so the eschaton is that which transcends mundane historical life so in in the case of climate change it's it's whatever future disasters come or whatever future utopia we might create because of this situation but the point is it transcends how we're normally doing things today um so then it, if the concern is don't eminentize the eschaton well if you've eminentized it, uh, in some ways, it's no longer the eschaton, right? Because it's not transcendent. So I think at the heart of a lot of these radical discontinuities in, in how we engage in, in social life and economic life is this question of, well, at the end of the day, um, if we do achieve, you know, what Naomi Klein's trying to achieve, if we do achieve what, what you all at, at Nori are trying to achieve with a sort of reduction of carbon in the atmosphere, and there's this radically new world that we come to, can we really call it the eschaton anymore once we've eminentized it? So I think that's where there's this ambiguity in the discourse, where we can criticize something for trying to bring the end of the world to today. But if it's here and if it's been created by human hands, then to what extent was it really ever the eschaton in the first place? Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm loving the nuance that you're bringing to this because I'm so used to it being a cudgel that someone like William F. Buckley would just use against political opponents. And Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, usually it's used in an opportunistic way, but I think there are genuine anxieties that people can have about this. So if you know if we're talking about from a, a religious standpoint, there's an anxiety of things that should be a matter of ultimate concern and faith we're confusing with things of this world with you know with things so we're we're concerned about nature or the environment and in a way you know is that making us nature worshipers or something like that so there's this concern of i guess you'd call it like idolatry or something like that where you're confusing what's ultimate and what's immediate to us and then there's this concern that you're moving beyond whatever came before in calling for a new world in response to climate change. And, and sometimes, you know, does that mean we're moving beyond the Christian faith or whatever faith? So I think those anxieties that people have are, there's a genuine sort of core to it, but it is a question of how realistic are the critiques that they're offering and how much do they hit home when they're actually criticizing someone like Naomi Klein or, or Greta Thunberg or something like that. Understood. And you're setting me up well for uh, another question I had about this. Oh, good. One of the components of uh, apocalyptic or eschatological theorizing that I'm used to is I've heard this explained as millenarianism, but I, I know that there's uh, like millennialism, I think is a sort of related idea, but different. I'm not sure which one I'm, I'm talking about. So feel free to steer me. Yeah. But it's this idea that the end of the world involves crisis, but then there's this preparing the way for the, the second coming of, of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. So then there are some Christian communities that are quite focused on building a better world now as a way of preparing for Christ. And other people think that it just sort of this crisis happens and then it just sort of spontaneously happens or something like that. So I think that's part of the end times, at least secular portion of mm -hmm. eschatology. This was halfway to gibberish. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I do. Yeah. So if we're talking about, just to, to, to step back and look at some of the, the terms you threw out there, and honestly, this can get very into the weeds, and I'm not sure I have a, a clear grasp of all of it, but very generally speaking, if we're talking about the millennium, this is the millennial kingdom of Christ. So when you see references to the kingdom of God uh, in the Gospels or something like that, and then it's hashed out more in the rest of the New Testament, the millennium is, is referring to this sort of eschatological kingdom. If it's something that comes to us, 
If it's something that comes to us from the other side, if God's bringing it to us in, in this sort of cataclysmic end, that's what is normally referred to as premillennialism. And that's the stuff that gets the most attention in the United States, especially. That's all the, the rapture stuff where there's a focus on sort of Jesus coming in glory, and then that brings in the kingdom. The other side of that, where you talked about sort of us paving the way toward getting to the millennium is would be post-millennialism. And, and that's connected more with the social gospel tradition in the U.S., where people were trying to do sort of kingdom work, you know, working with the poor and lowly and things like that. And that's much more an understanding of it sort of not coming out of human power and resources, but the fact that humans had a, a part to play in the narrative that brings us to the end. So yes, I think you're being clear. And sorry, just to, to make a short story long, that's sort of how it all kind of plays out. And then within that, there are, you know, plenty of different subdivisions for theologians to have chances to disagree with each other about it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for, for teaching me more about that. I'm grateful one thing we've, we've danced around a little bit, and given that I work in the environmental and climate space, I hear this sort of thing a lot about how people perceive the nature of time. And, uh -huh. I, and a lot of people, given that they have uh, environmental leanings, tend to look back to indigenous traditions or even just old European traditions too. Mm -hmm. uh, the old pagan ways were, it's all about cycles, right? Empires mm -hmm. rise, empires collapse, there's seasons. There's really not sustained progress. We might grow some and then we retreat back, which is true for you know most of settled human history. Uh, mm -hmm. The standard of living was essentially the same until I think what, like the 17th uh, or 18th century. And then you hockey stick up. And then we have that Whiggish view of history where things are constantly progressing and getting better. But that's a pretty new thing in the human experience. But one thing I thought was really interesting in your work, this article encouraged me to look a little bit more into was the idea that Christianity supposes a linear view of time, right? So mm -hmm. you have God creates the, the world, the universe, there's Eden, there's the fall from grace, Jesus shows up, he's crucified, he's resurrected, and then the end of history comes when he uh, returns. And that's mm -hmm. linear, right? That's not a cyclical view of history. Right. Is that a good thing for our understanding <laughs> of what it means to be to be human? And, and how exactly does that interact with how we view climate change? Because I think a lot of yeah. people, they sort of mix the two, right? Like they do think there's a sort of like, this is like maybe an end times crisis, but they also mm -hmm. probably think that we have lost sight of the cyclical view of history as well. Right. So I think it's a, it's one of those things where you can't just say, this is a good way of looking at things or a bad way of looking at things. All of this is so... Any way of perceiving time, it's not necessarily natural to us, but it becomes second nature after generations and generations of social structures conditioning us to think about time in that way. So to me, it's, it's almost, I don't know, it's almost beside the point to ask, is this the good way or the bad way of looking at time? Because you and, and me and anyone, you know, living within a Christian or a post-Christian context is going to look at time relatively linearly, even if they try to, to push against that. So to a certain extent, I think it's sort of that was sort of settled long before we came along. I would say, first of all, I would say, actually, there are circular aspects to 
thinking about time within the Christian tradition as well. And this would go for like Judaism um, with the, the cycle of, of holy days throughout the year based on the harvest and things like that. In the Christian tradition right now, I don't know when we're airing this, but you know, right now it's the Advent season. So that's the beginning of the Christian yearly cycle. And the end of the Christian year is actually a time of judgment uh, or of, uh, of reflecting upon uh, the judgment of human sin. And Advent at the beginning of the Christian liturgical year actually almost has an eschatological sense to it where we're looking forward to something and what we're looking forward to is Christmas, right? It's the birth of the Messiah. So there's a sense in which Cyclical and linear conceptions of time are wrapped up together in Christianity. And I, I suspect, you know, in, in more circular conceptions of time, there's also linear aspects there as well. So for me, the question is, how do these basic ways that humans understand the world around them help to make sense of reality for us? And if we look at, and I'm not a climate change expert, I'm a theologian, but, you know, if you look at the numbers, I, I think we see things that are unique and, and, and not cyclical in human history. And we see throughout uh, sort of the, uh, the development of, of the industrial West, we see a linear progression um, for good and evil. There are aspects of our history that make more sense to explain through a sort of trajectory toward a particular end, whether that's a good or a bad end. There are also feedback loops. There are natural cycles that are extremely important for understanding our future given the climate crisis. And those are, those are maybe it's more helpful to think of in terms of a, a cyclical sort of temporality. So I don't think it's either or. I think in some ways we can't do much about it in, in terms of adjusting how we what schemas we use to think about time. And uh, I think the most important question really is, you know, can we think in a, a theologically more critical way about this stuff so that we can have a better account of, of what's coming in, in the near future? Such an academic, Evan, giving me these, <laughs> these wiggly bit from column A, bit from column B kind of answer. Yeah, <laughs> a little um, bit of both. Yeah, no, I think that that's all fair. And it is interesting to think about um, because I think these these two conceptions of time broadly are posed against each other. And obviously, we we utilize both and in different ways. So cool. I guess my question in a way, if we want to look at other ways of conceiving time as more cyclical and maybe more helpful and more healthy, I guess, to connect with the um, humans as a, a part of the natural environment that's great. And then I think the question there is, how do you make sense of X, Y, or Z in a way that's better that, that a more linear sort of account does? Um, and there might be ways where it's more helpful and other ways where it's not. Sorry, I'm kind of repeating what I just said. but <laughs> No, no, it's good. Thanks for, for summing it up. Well, if people did want to learn more about this topic, which I have no idea how people are going to take this. I personally think it's interesting and I'm looking forward to doing a lot more episodes. I've been doing, I met with a rabbi recently and oh, I've been cool. trying to develop some, some stories coming out of Hebrew scripture. And mm -hmm. I'd like to engage a lot of traditions who, uh, I mean, basically everyone's thinking about climate change. So I wanted to do more of this. But what do you think are some good resources for people if they wanted to look, learn about the links between theology of various faith traditions and climate change? Where's a good place to start? 
Yeah, I, you know, and I, I was trying to think about this ahead of time. I'm relatively new to the literature there. When I did my doctoral studies, I worked on eschatology, and so there's an obvious connection there. But I'm kind of just dipping into some of the climate change literature as it's relevant to theology. So some of the books that I've read are, are not necessarily from theologians, uh, but I think they have some sort of theological interest to them, sometimes from ethicists is, is what I've looked at. One place that might be helpful, and, and I don't even know if, he, if he's coming from, I don't know what his religious background is, but uh, David Orr is an ethicist, and I think he's an environmental ethicist. And he wrote a book called Dangerous Years. I found that helpful to think about basic ethical questions that are going to be introduced given the climate crisis. And it's not theology per se, but it might help to give that wider human picture about the crisis. Another person, actually a personal friend, and I, I mentioned this to you and earlier as well, Willa Swenson Langell, she teaches religious ethics at Villanova University. And she's done a lot of cool work on um, the question of hope. So hope is a, a sort of classic theological virtue, but then looking at hope as a basis for human moral action. So she's really intrigued by this idea that a lot of us in, in sort of the developed world are kind of morally paralyzed by the climate crisis. And sometimes that, that plays out in denial. Sometimes that plays out in, you know, writing a screed on social media about it, but never actually getting up and doing anything about it, I guess. And so she looks at, at, at hope as something that allows humans to pursue moral action, specifically on climate change. Um, and she's been really interesting for me to read her work on it. The one other one I'd mention, and uh, this isn't on climate change in particular, but it's on having a, a wider natural scientific perspective on the questions that theologians are asking. So John Polkinghorne actually is a scientist, but also a theologian. And he wrote a book called The God of Hope and the End of the World. And I think he does a really good job of pointing out that Christianity and other faith traditions have lots of old stories about how the world ends and how we fit into that. But we haven't thought enough about how the world ends multiple billion years from now in the deep history of the universe and what's the religious significance of that. So he does a good job of, as a scientist, saying these questions are still relevant, but we haven't reflected theologically on them well enough because we're tied up in, in these sort of action-packed narratives like the Left Behind series or something like that. And, and we're not thinking about, you know, what happens when the earth is irrevocably changed because of climate change. What happens long after our species becomes extinct and what is the theological significance of that? So those are, I think, a few that I would point to. But this is something that I'm, I'm kind of learning a lot about as well. Um, so sorry, I'd, I'd, I wish I could be more helpful. I think there's, there's a lot of people. Oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention, you know, I'm talking about the end of the story here. A lot of theological reflection on climate change is about what's referred to as creation care or stewardship of creation. So I think people could find a lot of, of helpful stuff looking at people who are talking about creation care. That's kind of the bulk of what Christians and other faith traditions are looking at in relation to, to climate care. For me, I'm, I'm more interested in kind of the, the pessimistic end of the story and, and worst case scenarios and, and how do we think about that theologically. But that, that would be worth other people looking at. 
Great. Now, those are great recommendations. I'm sure you just added to my and listeners' ever-growing reading list. So thanks for doing that, Evan. Yeah. Um, and then one question that you you suggested for me, which I'm thinking about and still trying to wrap my head around, and, and listeners, if you have any ideas for good leads or for, for good topics related to climate change and theology, feel free to email hello at nori.com. But what sorts of, yeah, theologically inflected questions does climate introduce into theology as a discipline? Or thinking about the idea of the Anthropocene. What's on the frontiers of theology? Because I'm sure when people think about it, they're like, hasn't this stuff all been solved since like Aquinas or like yeah. Augustine? <laughs> like, is there more to do in theology? It seems kind of settled. And that's the problem, right? I mean, that's so people, you know, hear about what I do. You know, I'm a theologian and and it does seem like it's sort of you dust off the old books and, and you read the answers that have already been given. And we do a fair amount of that. But theology is ultimately about understanding human faith and how it works. And that's something that, that looks vastly different today than it did before. So I think Within the Anthropocene and on the verge of a climate crisis, the sorts of questions I'm asking, at least, have to do with some of the books I mentioned already, human moral motivation. What, what motivates us to respond to a crisis like this in a way that's helpful rather than violent and self-destructive? I think that just the mere concept of the Anthropocene raises questions about the nature of humanity and its relation to other species and its relation to the creation. So to what extent can we understand ourselves in a way that also incorporates us into geological time and, and biological evolution and things like that? And there's lots of good work being done on that right now. Climate change ultimately isn't just about nature and the climate it has a lot of social ramifications. So we are going to have migration crises. We're going to have political crises um, that follow along with any changes in our environment. So theological questions that ask about human belonging and exclusion, about our neighbor and our duty to our neighbor, about the nature of political boundaries and the moral commands that transcend those political boundaries and what we owe to our neighbor in a time when a lot of this is going to become unstable. I think theology has a lot of capacity to help us look at social complexities and make sense of them in a way that, that's uh, coherent and articulate. Oh, well, this is a whole new uh, area of inquiry for the podcast. There's a lot of topics that I'm sure people would be interested in hearing more about. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I'm super glad that you're looking into this. So I, I do. I think it's great. And uh, it sounds like you're, you're off to a good start with it. So. Well, you're a little biased, Evan, because you started it. I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here, Dr. Evan Keen. Very grateful that you made time to do this right before the holidays. We're about to break yeah. for, this is what, December 20th right now. So thanks for squeezing me in. Oh, no, I'm glad to do it. Yeah, thank you. And um, one other thing, too, is is there is there any work of yours that you'd like to share or someplace where people could keep up with what you're working on? 
Yeah, a lot of what I do is sort of deep in the weeds of some of these questions. So if you got, I don't know, you, I assume you'll probably link the, the piece I wrote on Greta Thunberg and how that relates to eschatology. My dissertation is coming out as a book about eschatology with Oxford University Press in, in 2020. So people could look at that for sort of the deep background of how some of this works, at least in my head. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the the big one I would point to. I'd love to I hope to do more with climate change related questions, but this is honestly kind of my first foray into it as well. Well, great. Well, we'd love to have you back to talk more if we can yep. find a good way to do so. Well, thank you again, Evan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And if you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Uh, Stay tuned for season two of Reversing Climate Change. This is just a neat little bonus episode that gives you a taste of some of what we're thinking about for the next season. And thank you so much for listening.